Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our webinar, First Steps on the Long Journey to Programmable Compliance. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion today. Now, there are so many jokes I've noticed about compliance officers these days. They've become an entire genre of their own in joke compendiums, standing alongside those about accountants and actuaries. Yet, researching today's discussion, I discovered that compliance is actually an increasingly demanding job. The 2020 Thomson Reuters Cost of Compliance Survey counted an average of 56,624 regulatory alerts from 1,000 regulatory bodies in the previous year. Now, that's an average of 217 regulatory revisions every working day. The average chief compliance officer has not only to monitor, assess and implement those revisions, but also take responsibility for disaster recovery and business continuity planning, cybersecurity, data protection. They have to handle HR issues like how people are recruited, how they're managed, retained, how they're dismissed, how they even behave in the office, and especially, of course, how they're paid. The compliance officer has to ensure that customers are not being missold products and suppliers are not criminals ensure the company meets its ESG disclosure obligations and do his or her best to mitigate personal liability, not only for the senior management of the company, but on their own account. So it's pretty obvious when you look at it that regulatory compliance needs machinery to automate as much of that work as possible. And the regulators as well as the regulated would welcome that. To help us explore how RegTech and SoupTech are delivering or not delivering uh, that automation. I'm joined by five experts in these twin fields. Kimo uh, Soramaki is the founder and CEO of FNA, a provider of supervisory technology, that's SoupTech, and regulatory technology, that's RegTech to financial institutions, including banks and financial market infrastructures. Sally Sphere Tate is the CEO of Regulation, a knowledge tech platform company developing tools and technology infrastructure AI-driven data and business intelligence for both regulators and regulated firms. Rupert Brown is CTO at Regulatory Advisors, Evidology Systems Limited, a specialist reg tech company which focuses on helping regulated companies stay compliant at all times. Francois Kimouge is a partner at Deloitte, publishers of the reg tech universe of 413 reg tech businesses around the world. Neeraj Raja is Managing Director and Head of Data, Regulatory Change and the RegTech Practice at Grant Thornton. Now, in addition to our panelists, as always, we have you, our audience. We want your questions, we want your comments, we want them soon, so send them. Keep sending them throughout uh, via the Q&A functionality. Uh, I will not save them up to the end, but we'll use them up as we go along. So if you choose to be, and I hope you will, you too can be an integral part of this discussion. I'm going to begin by checking that my definitions of regtech and soup-tech are correct. Now, in my mind, regtech is the application of technology by regulated firms, and soup-tech is the application of technology by regulators. Is that right, or can regulated firms also apply soup-tech and regulators apply regtech? I bet Kimo knows the answer to this question, so I'm not going to come to him first. I'd like to start with you, Sally. Uh, is my definition correct, or do your uh, do regulated firms end up doing soup tech as well as reg tech? Um, I usually have a different definition. Um, so reg tech is the category. Comp tech is compliance tech. Sub tech is supervision tech. But that's how I put it in my mind. Uh-huh. Great, Kimo. What, what what's your definition? Yeah, so um, how I understand this is uh, that, um, yeah, SoupTech is mostly used by supervisors. So it's in a way a, a category inside RegTech. Um, um, and uh, RegTech is sort of the broader. Some supervisors say they apply RegTech. For example, the Bank of England usually use, uh, use the term that they apply RegTech, but I haven't seen a regulated entity yet uh, saying that they uh, deploy SoupTech solutions or use SoupTech. Uh, so I would say SoupTech is a smaller category of how the supervisors use. And it's, a, it's actually very, very big now with a priority, a strategic priority for, for a lot of uh, a lot of supervisors this year, I think, especially at the back of the COVID situation last year. I don't know whether um, Rupert or Francois want to dispute that. It's, I think we're, we're sort of clear what we're talking about now, and perhaps we should we should move on to what um, the state of the market is, as I see it. Now, one of the things I, I noticed when I read the Thomson Reuters RegTech survey uh, was that only minorities, even of the biggest financial institutions, the GC, GC fees, are actually implementing 
uh, RegTech projects. It was it was nine percent in 2019, 14 percent in 2020, and the the figures were not very different for the whole population. They were looking at as eight percent uh, and seventeen percent. So, how many firms are actually taking RegTech um, sufficiently seriously to to actually invest in it. Nirish, can you give us a, a sense of what you think is going on? How accurate is the Thomson Reuters survey? Indicates a minority are doing this stuff. Sure. Dominic, I think uh, I think the Thomson Reuters survey is fairly accurate. Um, I think the, I've been working with RegTechs for the last 10 years, and I think the there's a change in terms of some of the maturity of the RegTechs that we've seen, um, in terms of what they're able to do, what they can do, there is a change in terms of the, the regulators themselves, you know, I've been involved with the FCA and Bank of England on DRR, and the regulators are really creating an uh, energy around that. And then there's also cost pressures that are coming in, obviously, in regulated firms and an acceleration of data models. So all of that is leading to a better ability in terms of the actual reg tech market. However, and there is a big however, so there's maturity in the market, there's a willingness. In terms of actually the utilization of RegTechs, RegTechs making it into regulated firms, we're still not seeing enough embedding of RegTechs in regulated firms. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is um, the history in terms of regulated firms actually making the time and the investments to actually have the long-term benefits coming from RegTech. Secondly, we're seeing that the RegTechs, although they've matured quite significantly in the last few years, they're still finding it very difficult to actually articulate the benefits and how they're actually going to build into the taxonomy and the product libraries of regulated firms. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the other things that I observed in that survey is that actually the rate of the rate of adoption of these of these these solutions seem to be going down as well. It was higher a couple of years ago than it, than it is now. So, um, I don't think anything, anything to add on that. Does it mean that the the providers have picked the, the low hanging fruit already? Or that they're actually starting to lose confidence in in RegTech. Perhaps a quick thought from you on that, um, Niresh, and, and Francois, I'm sure, has a view on it. Yeah, I, th- I think, Dominic, uh, it, it's a difficult one. I think the adoption, and we're seeing different kind of viewpoints around do- adoption, and I think that's primarily because, <clears throat> as we're seeing firms actually leveraging technology more and more, um, and COVID has been a great, and we've all heard the joke, COVID has been a great accelerator of digitization, and that includes RegTechs. The worry, however, is that the use of RegTechs dif- across different components and organizations being able to leverage RegTechs in the right components, clients are still struggling. So just go- going back to the broader definition of RegTech, everything which is regulated technology is into that viewpoint. Now, we've created a taxonomy in terms of what different components of RegTechs and where they sit. I'm sure Francois Kim has as well. And we have different techn- taxonomies to start articulating which type of RegTechs can serve which solution. And what clients are really struggling with is how to understand which RegTechs can undertake horizon scanning as opposed to regulation to controls or compliance monitoring, and then using the right RegTechs for the right reason. The second part um, is actually implementation of RegTechs. Sometimes the clients we're working with, and, and, and from my past experience, been very bamboozled by some of the actual technologies and the dashboards and the, and the actual viewpoints, as opposed to RegTech implementation and RegTech enablement is a change project, which requires an operating model change, governance, process, capability development, and, and one can't go without the other. And so for those two reasons, we're seeing, although there is a appetite for RegTech, in terms of adoption and stickiness in terms of RegTechs and using them with benefits, there's still a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could only agree to what has been say, said here. What I, I see with our clients, it's uh, that they're still in the midst of a, a change of mindset. So not so long ago, they were still uh, very much in a do-it-ourselves mode, whereby they had their own computer rooms, they had uh, their big system, they were very uh, reluctant to open uh, their ecosystem to external uh, parties. That is slowly changing, but this is happening. To, to the previous question as to whether incumbent companies are treating RegTech seriously, I think that they all do. And I think that the, the question about using the right technology is on everyone's lips. And that includes, of course, uh, RegTech. The, the only thing is that they have not yet figured out how to trust those uh, companies. 
And also, I think that they are faced with a very vast amount of, uh, of companies and they, they are a bit lost in trying to figure out, figuring out where they need to, to go. There's so much going on uh, mm -hmm. in every piece uh, of, uh, of their value chain. There is a new solution that will make their life better. So they need to figure out where they have needs uh, and where they, they, they should start. Well, I think right. that this is really one, yeah. one of the, the, the key issues. Yeah. I mean, your own universe has got these 413 entries. So just very quickly, is there any sign that the market is starting to rationalize or some of these reg techs dropping out or being taken over? Uh, globally, no, because the, the universe is uh, in constant uh, expansion. We've got uh, news about uh, new, new companies uh, just uh, emerging day after day after day. As soon as there's a new regulation, there's a new response to that uh, regulation. As soon as there's a, a new technology that seems to be promising, we see also uh, new companies there. This said, um, there are indeed some uh, niche processes on which we see clearly some, some winners and some laggers. Uh, but on that one, I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, the. The, the, the game is done in the sense that uh, there's still much part of the, uh, the market to, to be taken. Uh, for instance, if I look at, at a specific area, in, for instance, in Luxembourg, that really caught the whole market, it was due diligence uh, type of um, uh, solutions. Uh, this caused a lot of uh, interest by the, the, the whole market. And so far, our assessment is that 30% of the, the financial institution have got uh, a, a rectech solution in terms of, uh, of due deal. So that means that 70% of the market is still to be taken. So still a lot of progress to be made. To be. Yeah, I think, I think Francois and, and Dominic, you, you've touched on an interesting problem that if, if you kind of look how the regtech reg market has evolved, it's actually evolved piecemeal. You know, we've kind of gone through GDPR, MIFID, CRD4, and, and everyone is reacting to these things. So, so I'd say in the regtech market, you see lots of people providing regulatory reporting solutions. That's kind of regtech. And, and you see lots of people doing KYC and AML. I, you know, if, you, if I were to look at the noise in the marketplace, I would say reg reporting, KYC, AML is probably 70 to 80% of the noise. And it's reactive because those systems solve a particular set of regulations. They're not providing a continuum of supply chain from the, you know, the change stuff that you talked about. You know, the, however many thousands of the regulatory changes that emerge every day. We're not seeing that pipeline then trickle down to the endpoint evidence systems that you need to support those things. Oh. And, and that's what, uh, you know, I was talking to a Magic Circle law firm the other week, and it was, they call that the air gap. It's how do you map from the regulation to the compliance that you're actually reporting? And, and you know, when you look at various people's taxonomies, um, you know, I can think of a number of the people that have tried to display this as sort of slideware to say, this is the issue. This is the heart of the problem that we've got lots of point solutions in the industry because we all go ambulance chasing. GDPR was the biggest ambulance chasing exercise ever because mm -hmm. of the 4% fine. I'd like to, to, we've had an interesting question from Sharon um, Wandili, which you should all look at because it, I think it raises a very interesting point I'd like to bring up in a minute. Before I do, I'd like to bring, bring Sally in now. Um, both Niresh and, um, and Rupert in their different ways, so they have brought up this question of, of the components of, of, of RegTech. Now, I, I, did, I found that um, uh, Francois, is taxonomy the right word anyway, his classification of, of different RegTechs into compliance monitoring, risk management, identity management, regulatory reporting, transaction monitoring, actually very useful. And to your point, uh, Rupert, identity management makes up 23% of the of the reg techs in that database, regulatory reporting makes up only 14%. The vast majority or the biggest group, not a majority, but the biggest group of 41% of vendors are in compliance monitoring, i.e. interpreting and, and implementing you know, current compliance um, demands. And there's a whole risk management side, which covers everything, you know, from personal liability through to uh, 
financial crime. Now, uh, Sally, how does a how does a, a regulated firm make sense of this vast and rapidly inflating universe of, of reg tech applications? Um, that's a good question. I mean, you've got to, well, first of all, you've got to think about the investment. This, the reg tech sector is no different from any other sector in the sense that um, you're going to have startups that follow a problem and then it will depend on the size of the problem. So the areas that Francois mentioned are the ones that have the most money spent on. So therefore you do have a lot of startups that come up to solve that problem. Um, and the reason that you see a lot of point solutions is because that is what gets funded. So let's just, you know, let's just bring it, bring a little bit of reality into and, and the practical background into what happens. If you're a customer on the receiving end on, of this, which is to some extent, it means that you've got startups that have matched the size of your problems. So that's pretty good. But if you as a CEO are looking at, and this is something that Niresh, you and I were talking at another talk about. If you as a CEO are looking at, okay, I want to solve a myriad of problems and I would really like to adopt a solution that solves a lot of these problems, then there's no alignment of interest here. But if you're at a, you know, if you're a MLRO, you kind of know which bucket to look at. But getting your budget signed off from the CEO is probably going to be a little bit more tricky. So in the new iteration of Rectex, um, and, and we are one of those uh, Rectex, although I call us a knowledge tech company, not a Rectex company, um, we've developed a data access platform that solves access to data across the entire organization. But what that means is that if you're a CEO looking at it, you look at, okay, I can solve a, a lot of problems with this solution. And if you're a tech company, you can think, well, that's good. I get to connect to a lot of data sets. So we actually sit kind of in the middle and we're not the only company out there do, who are trying to be, um, who are, sorry, not trying to be, who are actually solving a horizontal problem. There, are, There is a new generation of those. It's very difficult if you're a, um, compliance officer to actually find those solutions because it does take a little bit of work on your part. But that is actually one thing that hasn't been said, I think, so far. Um, there's a, there is a maturation. And to your point, Dominic, earlier, what's changing? There is a maturation, I think, within the firms themselves. So they started a few years ago by looking externally and looking at the solutions and studying what solutions are out there. They asked a lot of questions. They went back, they learned. And you, and again, even the, the, on the buy side, not everybody is equal. Some people have been going through that process of purchasing tech solutions and therefore know what questions to ask, what to look for, what's involved in it, change management, organizational change, et cetera, et cetera. And others are still very much at the beginning of it. Mm. So I think your starting point is look internally. Your starting point really, that was a long way of answering. Look internally, what's your problem? What can you get budget for? And then decide. <laughs> Could I think I... just, uh, sorry, Dominic. Is that you, Niresh? Yeah, it is. I just had a kind of a counterpoint. Go ahead. Go ahead. Counterpoint, actually. I think, so, so uh, you know, I, I was kind of with two global organizations or global banking organizations. And I suppose from a customer standpoint, um, in from my previous experience, I, I would slightly disagree with the fact that if you would look at the, the, the regulatory, regulatory technology firms which are out there, They've matured to an extent by which they started to specialize. And I'm talking about the maturity of some of the ones that have been around for five to 10 years. As I think Sally said, look, we're always going to find new, new startups trying to chase the money. But we are now seeing a maturity of maybe 20 to 30 reg tech firms out of the 200 reg tech firms in the UK, which at the UK market, who've matured to understand there are specific parts of the regulatory change lifecycle and compliance lifecycle that they are specializing in. Um, and then, and what really the actual execution needs to be to make that happen. I also think very similar to any solution and any aspect, uh, we're never going to get to a point where a half a dozen reg techs are going to do everything, you know, from horizon scanning through to, you know, impact assessment through to monitoring, et cetera. So I think we're going to, we're going to have to see two things. One is one of the things we need to, we are we, we should be doing is to educate buyers in terms of which type of reg techs can solve which type of problems and where do they exist. The second is actually it's not the simple thing as I said earlier of just a solution and just a software. It's the 
methodology and approach to actually implement and get benefits out of those reg techs. Thanks. Um, mm -hmm. Can we address Sharon um, Wandili's question here? Would you say financial regulators are using regulatory sandboxes to ensure emerging technologies like AI, Bitcoin, et cetera, applied by fintechs in financial services companies uh, uh, comply with, with regulations? There's actually quite a lot in that, in that question. Now, Sally, I'm sure you're well qualified to, to give us a view on, on the ability of, of AI first to, to meet that air gap, which Rupert referred to, and, and Niresh has just spoken very eloquently about, you know, educating people on what to get and then actually implementing things. You know, turning a regulation into an automated solution is, is not the work of a moment. What's your, what's your reaction to Sharon's question? It's quite a loaded question, actually. Uh, BTC yeah. is Bitcoin, just to, I, I assume that's it, but that might not be it. Um, uh, has, has, um, has everybody been following the Ron Khalifa report, the FinTech review? Yes, yes, we've all been reading that very eagerly. Right, and you saw the announcement, was it, um, I think it was yesterday or something, about um, the scale box and the FCA now having a scale box? Just that one, but yeah, go, go on, tell us about it. Right, so um, are they using it for regulatory compliance? I think the first iteration of, of sandboxes was very much about fintech and about seeing the impact of fintech on the financial sector. I mean, ultimately, regulators are conduct regulators and systemic and, and prudential regulators. So that was probably the starting point. And then RegTech came up and actually it's very much part of that wave. Um, I think if you look at the history of the FCA sandbox, it very much started with FinTech and then they entered RegTech also into FinTech to see how it would work. So are they using the sandboxes to ensure emerging technologies applied by FinTechs comply with regulations as a way of experimenting, but not as a way of ensuring. Because if you're really thinking about it as a regulator, I mean, there was a study, uh, I think there was a joint exercise that was done by the Bank of England and the FCA about the use of AI by, um, uh, by firms in the UK. And if you read through that, it's quite clear. And if you're a regulator, it's quite clear also that you would reach out to the firms and find out how they're using AI, how they're justifying the use of AI, how they're relying on the use of AI. So. I think it's a way of education rather than a way of ensuring that they comply. One of the ways I interpreted Sharon's question was whether the, the, the reg tech, fintechs, if you like, are being treated by the FCA as a kind of experiment in the application of AI to regulatory automation in general. That's, that's not what's happening. I'd, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I think it's it's a it's an education. Sandboxes are very much an education cross collaboration. Um, it's an education for the fintechs as well. Right. Okay, now, Kimo, I'd like to, to, to bring you in because um, we're starting to, to, to talk a little bit about the, the regulated firms themselves need to, need to be ready to implement these things. And, you know, we've touched on how difficult it is to, to automate regulations themselves. Um, we've, we've, we've learned that, that reg techs and soup techs are getting better at producing solutions. In fact, sometimes too good as it was they're chasing the money. But what about what's going on inside regulated firms? Are, do compliance teams have the right set of skills to adopt these, these technologies? Um, do they have legacy attitudes they need to overcome? Do they have legacy systems? Um, do they, you know, uh, the way they store data, for example, we've heard Sally talk about the importance of data to, to, to using these uh, technologies. Um, maybe the data is scattered across all sorts of things from spreadsheets to old fashioned um, databases. Uh, so, and then of course they, they face personal liability. So how eager are they to entrust a machine to keeping the firm compliant? Is, are there a bunch of problems inside regulated firms, Kimo, which, which are an obstacle to reg tech adoption? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you mentioned the data is always, uh, um, always a problem. Um, like I think very recently it's even available in sort of, we, we specialize in very granular data analytics. So we our inputs are mostly like individual payments, individual loans, individual trades. Um, and this type of data really hasn't been available at the regulated institutions and, uh, and, and most of them isn't yet available. Um, so, so there's been a, 
a lot of push after the financial crisis over 10 years ago to um, upgrade the IT systems so that uh, the data would be available. And it's been, I think, successful in, in some parts, but, but not everywhere. Um, the other one is um, especially with the, um, so we also work a lot, of, maybe even more in the super tech space with the, uh, with the regulators around the world um, and their procurement processes are, are usually designed to, um, to be much more clumsy um, instead of like experimentation and, uh, and uh, sort of rapid prototyping, which I think you need in an area where, where a lot of things are going on and uh, new, new, new ideas, um, artificial intelligence, how can you apply it better, how can you get more insights from the existing data sets, how can you tap into unstructured and the open data sets. Uh, you need experimentation before you can build production solutions while their procurement processes are designed by an ex uh, a database system that has been around for 30 years. I think that's, that's, that's another, um, you know, like a, a, a blocker there. Um, um, coming back to the previous discussion, um, I, I think completely agree with Sally around like uh, that uh, you, know, you, you need to have a problem that you are solving. Um, and quite often in, if, if the client wants to buy something, it's because they want to save money, uh, they want to make money, or then the regulator says that they must do it uh, irrespective of any other concern. Um, and that's sort of the, uh, the compelling argument why you should do anything is this. And, and that's what this, the reg tech is, is, is in a way saying, is saying that these are regulations, this needs to be done, and, uh, and you may, may want to do them cheaper than in the initially a lot of the, uh, the regulations were complied by just throwing more bodies at the problem. Um, and then the reg tech industry, in a way, it was created from, from automating and doing that smarter with less cost, uh, faster uh, than, than, than you did before. Now, um, Rupert, we brought up the question of data. I, I'd be interested in your views on, on the readiness of regulated firms to adopt you might have a thought on that as well, but primarily I'd like you to give us your, your views on, on, on this data question. Clearly these systems rely on data. Um, clearly firms are keeping data, in a, in a, the data is a bit messy inside these, these firms. On top of that, of course, the RegTech has to keep up with these 217 uh, uh, alerts every day. Um, out there are a bunch of, of data vendors as well. I'm not sure what part they're playing in, in making this easier or, or more difficult. Then you've got GDPR on top of that. You've got to protect protect the, the data. Then you've got these thousand regulators churning this stuff out every day. They're not doing it in a standardized form. So you're continually having to, to reformat data. It sounds like a really, sounds like data is absolutely crucial, but it's really, really difficult to build a efficient reg tech with all these different pieces. Am I right to think that way? Uh, you certainly are. I, I, I'm not sure that we are we're any closer to an answer. I do wonder actually at times if things are getting worse. Um, okay. Not only do we have this tsunami of change and, and you know, all sorts of new regulations as technology evolves, that's, you know, that's the, the, the thing cranking the handle as it were. But if we look within organizations, they traditionally fail to consolidate their data estates. You know, is you only have to look, you know, you only have to work in, you know, I've worked in banks for 30 years and, you know, the variation in data platforms, how many different databases do you have? And then what are the patch levels of those things? How many different pieces of middleware? Organizations have utterly failed to deal with that. Um, you know, the basic platform engineering that we have inside banks where they are not in the cloud where they don't have declarative architectures, these are huge problems that are not being solved. And you know, we had the crash in 2008, basically killed budgets for the best part of four years. Um, we then had you know, a whole bunch of other sort of catch up projects that have occurred. Now we've had COVID that has taken away a lot of discretionary and investment budgets. We're just living in an OPEX world, quite frankly, for, the, for well, most of last year and probably all of next year because the pandemic isn't sorting itself out. So, so firms haven't cleaned house. They're still living with the patchwork, which is why layers like Sally's system, you know, we, we went through the Hadoop generation, uh, what, three years ago now? We, we've kind of been through these experiments and things aren't getting any better. So data is an issue. I think it's a question of, yes, we're going to have to have these various data layers and things like that. We are going to have to have these data lineage systems. We're seeing a whole generation of those coming to the market now. And we're also going to have to have these data 
operations process system. So people like Calibra out there, because the regulators are now asking the question is, well, how do you manage your data, as it were? So we're seeing, we're seeing, I would say, the seedlings, as it were, growing that say we have to do something about data. And perhaps the fine that was imposed on Citibank last year, was that 400 million, I seem to recall? Um, you know, it, it is bringing some attention on one side. Unfortunately, GDPR hasn't levied the fines. My, um, I wrote a piece the other day that actually said, well, if you look at the history of GDPR fines, none of them have survived first contact with the legal system. You know, they've all been knocked down to less than 10% of the initial regulatory fines. Hmm. Um, and it's taking something like a year from when a fine was levied to actually the fine being paid. In fact, we don't have concrete data from the date of a breach to the date of the check being paid to the regulators. And I think, you know, quite frankly, both the both the legal system and the the or, and the politicians need to do something to drive the speed of fixing data breaches and data remediation. And we need some sort of statute of limitations that says. If you don't, if you keep fighting on appeal, you've got three months to appeal, then you pay for whack. Yeah, we've actually got to make this stuff happen faster. And that's both from a data quality point of view and a data security point of view, that we really must do something about this to drive data quality through a much more rigorous um, driven change processes with bounded gates. And to be clear, Rupi, mm. you're, you're referring to regulatory forbearance on these GDPR breaches so far, and I had noticed one or two of those myself, mm. but you'd actually think they should be levying these 4% of turnover fines to actually encourage people to do the job properly? Well, I think there's two problems. So there's the issue, there was this issue with this case in Germany recently where it was clear that it wasn't a 4%, you know, the value of the breach was not 4%, yeah, because nobody had actually stolen the crown jewels and stolen the entire database. They'd stolen one phone number. And had they stolen it, well, that was debatable. Now, the issue was really one about the fact that the discussion about that, the lawyer spent a year appealing it to get that fine down. The answer is the lawyer should have had three months, and if they couldn't do the work, then the initial fine levied should have been paid in three months. So it actually forces people, do I actually pay and do something about it? Or do I use lawyers to get the cost down? And at the moment, the lawyers are winning. Yeah, we're kicking these things into touch rather than engineering solutions that fix them. Can I ask you one final question then about this? Um, does the fact that that these, these, risk, these risks of being fined exist out there, does that increase people's reluctance to adopt reg tech, soup tech solutions? In other words, do they feel that increases their risk of getting something wrong if they trust the machine? Is that a factor? I, I mean, I, there is a fear of trusting machines and I think there always will be. Uh, you know, there was that case of the French uh, blockchain company or Bitcoin company where they, you know, actually they made a, you know, a fairly simple cybersecurity mistake and what appeared to be very clever people were suddenly found with their pants around their ankles. So, so you can, I can understand why people wouldn't trust the machine in that case. Mm -hmm. So there's always the, the illusion of trust um, that you have to deal with. So it's how do you, and this comes to a fundamental problem of regulation going forward is how do we regulate design? Yeah, When we have to deal with these complex things of cryptocurrencies or blockchain, or even just basic data center network design and power systems. How do we know the design is good? We actually don't have a means of doing that yet. So it is very difficult to trust these things. Francois, um, we, we've begun to touch now upon the, the economics of, of, of reg tech. Um, you know, can't Rupert's referred to the fact nobody has a budget. Um, uh, Sally referred to the fact that you know reg techs are popping up where they feel a budget might might exist. So, as you look across the universe, you're monitoring um, what types of institutions do you think are are getting budgets to do this type of thing, and what types of institutions are finding other answers to this? In other words, are they doing it themselves? Are they outsourcing this job? How difficult is it to make a case that you could save a lot of money by buying reg tech? As Sally said before, I think that it really depends on the type of issues that uh, are to be resolved. So 
part of the compliance officer's job is mechanical and part of it is to take to make judgments and to take decisions. On the mechanical part, it's relatively easy to, uh, to elaborate a business case. And where it's easy to demonstrate that there will be a cost saving, then it's easy to actually uh, go up to the implementation stage. So that's why I believe that all the reporting solutions uh, were quite successful because these were the low hanging fruits it was very easy to demonstrate that if you have to do 25,000 kids or whatever, uh, you'd be better off with the right machine than having 20 people doing that by, by hand. Uh, now, there are cases, and Rupert uh, is absolutely right in saying that there's a paradox with, uh, for instance, data. And this is one of the key compliance issues if you're if you don't have access to a trustworthy data sources, then that is a compliance issue in itself. And although that everyone will agree that data is the new oil, the new currency, you name it, um, when it comes to actually uh, agreeing to a budget to improve uh, the way that your data management system works, then that is much more complicated because it's much more complicated to actually demonstrate what you are get, going to get money-wise from an improved data management system. Now, we see that those who have incurred fines, sanctions by the regulators, uh, understand that much better than those who didn't. So we do, uh, we do get a lot of requests from our clients to actually find a solution that will allow uh, uh, our clients to sleep better at night. And this is where the question about risks comes into play. And actually, it is still widely recognized that if you rely on an automated solution, the, the, the chance of operational error will be reduced. And hence, that is also quite a, a big factor. Now, I'm not talking about, say, uh, automated uh, robo-advice, for instance, whereby here the, the mechanism by which the advice will be uh, given is much more complicated or the way that fraud or anomalies are uh, detected. Uh, so what I would say again is that there are relatively easy cases uh, and, and some which are much more complicated. The, the thing is that, as we discussed before, there should be a change of mindset vis-a-vis -vis those new technologies and uh, I think it's, it's part also of the education. Uh, there are things on which, you know, it's not just about money. Uh, you can use some system to go faster on the market. For instance, the way that certain products are going to be authorized by supervisory authorities to be sold, uh, this could be speeded up vastly by using the right technology. Um, and so on and so on. For instance, if you implement a new way of identifying your, your customer, and you move from a paper-based or physical uh, process to something which is online, that has the potential of opening up totally new avenues in terms of the types of customers that you are going to, to reach out to, et cetera. And that is not yet, I would say, uh, adopted by, um, by, by the financial sector. And, there's still some education to be done there to actually show and demonstrate those use cases which are not all money related. Right, okay, Niresh, you've heard what say. Data. Sorry, Dominic, I'm gonna add something about data because um, yeah. I think the, the, the world of data has been portrayed as being one of doom and gloom, which I don't think is correct. <laughs> not by so, us at Future of Finance, I might say. We're very excited about data. We're just puzzled that people don't, don't, don't share that opinion with us. So we're with you, but I can believe you're right about nobody else sharing that opinion. Yeah, so go on. So um, it is true that data is in silos. It is true that you've got data that's that's found in antiquated um, in systems that are no longer supported. It is true, and I was a um, head of compliance, that it is excruciatingly difficult to validate your own data and its provenance. Um, so all of that is true. However, uh, technology solutions like ours do, uh, we are, and again, it's, it's, it goes back to the education piece. It is next generation technology, and we have found technological ways of accessing the data 
without having to go through the process of um, identifying it, labeling it, cleaning it, um, <clears throat> moving it, um, uh, standardizing it so that you've, so there are ways around it that are technological ways. Um, and we, and this is my personal view, my, my personal experience, the conversations at CEO level, when you are talking about a whole data management offering and a way, a new way of utilizing your data, your conversation is definitely at the C-suite level. Um, if you're talking at a head of department level, because it is not, the, the data is not under their control and it's a bigger exercise, you've got to speak at the level that has a bigger budget for IT, but there are solutions that are out there. And also the other thing that I would dispute is that actually um, the, the pandemic has been excellent for IT budgets. Um, in fact, I think that um, I've, I, I went with one of the one of our customers. We went from talking about on-prem to cloud preferred um, within months, really, um, because of the pandemic. So actually, if you're talking at the right level with the right people, I think the movement on data there's a much bigger momentum than there used to be. And I think there are lots of strategic leaders out there that are, that are willing to have these conversations because they know that the pace of change is going to continue, the level of complexity is going to continue, and the level of data is going to continue. And if they do not do this right now, then they will be, be, be overtaken by those who do. So um, I'm actually quite positive about the problem and its solution, but that's because I'm tackling it. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I just don't add, add on that. Uh, so we actually work a lot on synthetic data that has the characteristics of the of the real system because a lot of the insights can be gained uh, if you if you reproduce the uh, the um, the moments of the data correctly. Also, with synthetic data, so you don't need to uh, need to um, um, go through the trouble of uh, of uh, getting the transactional um, data that has all this personally identifiable information and so forth because that's not relevant for the analysis necessarily. Um, and um, and I think there's been a lot of lot of discussion on the state data standards and like a sort of formatting of data. I don't think that's very relevant um, for us. Um, it's more the data content that is the relevant piece. Like the uh, I, I think the um, legal entity identifier uh, like initiative, for example, is is awesome because it allows in the future us to. Uh, to connect uh, two entities that are in different databases. There's a lot of the value in, in the analysis comes from tapping into different sources of data and being able to combine it uh, automatically without a huge amount of manual effort. So it's more the data content standards to understand okay, what is inside the data rather how it's represented because you can always um, automate the representation piece to, uh, to, to pass it in the right way, uh, but um, understanding the, uh, the content is more difficult. Yeah, and one one final thing is that I know I know that regtech is usually in the context of fintech of finance, but actually regtech is is much broader than that. At least my definition. So, for example, GDPR is a bit of regtech to some extent. And if you look at um, the world of regulation as it relates to data, and if you look at the growth of GDPR and of data localization requirements, I think there's a Gartner report that's that's quite recent that's shown that. By 2023, 65% of the world will have data-specific legislation up from 10%. This is 2023. So you're not talking about in 10 years. You're talking about right now. If you have to, if you have to make decisions about data management, it really is right now. Now, Niresh, I don't often have this feeling in, in webinars, but I'm getting excited by what I'm hearing from, uh, from Kimo and, and Sally here that actually um, messy data isn't a problem. Um, even budgets are, are not a problem. Uh, maybe even thinking about this purely in terms of saving money uh, isn't a problem. It's all about putting on new business and reducing and reducing risks. Uh, Niresh, are, are, um, are Sally and, and Kimo just in sales mode here and we should just, <laughs> or, or, or is there some technological breakthrough here which means we do not have to worry anymore about messy data? By the way, neither Kimo nor I have said that 80% of the market is like this. <laughs> I think from my perspective, when, it, when you talk about strategic forward looking, I'm not talking about 80% of the market. I'm talking about a much smaller percentage. No, but I'm, I'm genuinely, so, you may have hit on something here which is really useful to people who are listening. Yeah. 
let's let's stay with it. And yeah, yeah, I think so, and I think uh, and I'll try to get an a word in edgewise from Sally. So I think the the key the key parts I think in terms of if we look at digitization, so if we take at the viewpoint of where digitalization is, digitalization is can only happen with data. Um, so anyone who's kind of working around saying digital channels and, and, and working that through without data, digitalization can't happen. So I absolutely believe and I am excited in terms of the future that data is the core of how we're going to have um, the kind of common ecosystem of how our companies are going to operate, never mind in financial services. And we're going to move and we're moving from open banking to open finance, which the regulators have consulted on to a ecosystem open data across industries, across financial services. And I think the key thing around data is we're always going to have, I call it data debt, which is, you know, we've heard of technology debt, call it data debt, which is there are organizations which are legacy organizations will always have data debt. However, there are aspects of actually looking at quality of data and metadata management around how data is looking at the critical data elements and then focusing on quality and lineage means that organizations are realizing that their true value of data is actually focused on one, cleaning up the data that they actually need, not all data. Two, then the actual data that's going to pre provide value in terms of customer data, product data, et cetera. They can focus on and create insights and profiling. And then thirdly, they can monetize that data. Um, and monetization in my language is not just monetization, but creating value out of data for both defense and offense. And I talk about that a lot using data for offense defense. So I think there is the, you know, in summary, I think I, I agree. My view is there still is a problem around data quality and there will always be a problem around data quality and the data debt. But I think to balance that without actually, organizations and executives are committed to actually progressing the, the future of data. And without, the, without data, you can't get to a digitalized environment and digitalized ecosystem. And so because of where we've got to in terms of the COVID environment, there is momentum and budget to be able to one, look at metadata management carefully and, and curate that data. Secondly, the tooling has improved to an extent, um, and I won't mention some of the vendors, but the tooling has um, improved to an extent across from metadata management to data classification and data cataloging through to data quality and data linear toolage, that these problems can be solved with the right uh, intent, will, and budget. So hopefully, Dominic, that, that answered the question in terms of future is bright in terms of uh, term, term, terms of data. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of investment going into the data in the right place. I still think in terms of data management, there is a period of education and data literacy that needs to happen um, to join up data strategy to data management to some of the tactical parts that um, Kimo and, and Sally talked about in terms of how to start to, to quali uh, improve quality of data and how to undertake analytics. Who, need, who needs education? Mm -hmm. The regulation or the regulators or both? Every, yeah, so I think uh, one of the thing about COVID, and we come, keep coming back to COVID, is the data literacy of the common person improved immeasurably because we had the daily briefings in terms of data. I didn't expect the ONS was something, some an organization anybody had heard of before COVID in terms of the amount of data they put out. So those daily briefings, um, and, and my, my, you know, my apologies to the ONS, I think it's a fantastic organization. But I think in terms of the, the, the amount of daily briefing has improved the actual data literacy. And in terms of data literacy, I think that the um, number of clients I speak to about data literacy, every single level of organization have to improve in terms of the use of data, the value of data, and then uh, one of the practical use cases of how data is used and how data can be important to the customer journey. So I, I think data literacy, what we're finding is not only at the top level, at the executive level, but data literacy has to be uh, instrumented across every single layer of the organization. And that's how, when that happens, can we really see people saying, actually, we really understand data and what to do with data and how to use data to make our lives better, um, uh, create more business, um, et cetera. Right. If I may add something to what Nimesh just said, which is uh, absolutely right. Um, my perception is that um, there's a misconception about data. Most of the time, people, when they think about data, it's the amount of data they are going to get that they can collect, uh, etc. Whereas the value of data will derive from the management of these, these data elements. And one of the, the, the key thing to do is to first get a good view on the status of the data that you have, the quality of the, the data that are being used. And this is also something 
uh, on which uh, I feel that we, we have to do a lot of education uh, to insist on the management part of, uh, of the data. Can I, can I throw something into the mix here that, and that is we, we, we've got onto this that about data, data quality, all of that stuff, we're in that journey. What data do, do my other um, esteemed panel members think that regulators own? So I would argue that the Bank of England owns a data glossary for the products it regulates, the PRA, the FCA. I don't see them producing data feeds from their glossaries. I can download a PDF of it. Um, I can go to a website and get a most ghastly piece of HTML back from the FCA. Um, but these are not data feeds. And I would argue that it is the duty of the regulators to own particular bits of data, whether they're taxonomies or glossaries or ontologies, pick your, pick your thing. But none of those are in a digital form today from any regulator. And I suspect that this is actually the heart of where we are stuck in regulatory world because neither the regulations are in a coherent digital form nor the underlying reference data that underpins them. And until we solve that problem, we ain't going anywhere. What do, the, what do regulators do with all that data in the trade repositories? Does it just sit there or do they do anything with it? You know, reporting swaps, for example, and securities financing positions, which you have to do under regulations. I think that's, that's quite, there's a lot of it that's automated. If you're talking about the, um, you know, the, the OTC world, that's quite, that's the derivatives world. That's actually, there's a lot of automation there because it gets centralized through the clearinghouse. Hey, are, are the regulators doing anything with it? They're, they're doing quite a lot of research on it and uh, evaluating the quality of that data, which uh, like um, the problem is that it comes from several sources. Um, so like pulling that together to get a global view has been very difficult. Um, and uh, that was, I think, one of the early, early sort of like, because this was, well, it was one of the early efforts to start like collecting data. And there was quite a lot of errors made in the beginning around like a, like a, um, defining what the data formats are, but not data content. <laughs> so, so then everyone was producing a little bit data, different data content into theirs, and it's taken a long time to uh, to get that into uh, into um, into something that is uh, actually you can get get insights. Uh, we we did it last year and uh, some years ago quite a bit of work, um, um, and um, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority use our software to uh, to understand what is in in this data and. and uh, and uh, maybe why don't, they let, why don't they let you? Why don't they let you play with the data and tell them what's in it? <laughs> um, well, we quite, well, quite often it's very supervisory data, so we install our software on premise, and then they run the uh, the analysis uh, to understand who is trading with who, who are the systemically important players, and so forth, and produce publications. I don't think any regulator produces uh, like on an uh, on an ongoing basis real time views about what's going on there yet, uh, but I do know that there are I think uh, efforts for this year uh, to start to. Uh, Sort of push uh, in, into better, like data uh, quality and uh, and more automation around that uh, that uh, sort of part of I think the just, just but I completely just... agree. Like it's it's long due. You know, think about it. The financial crisis was how many years ago, uh, and how, how long has it taken in order to, to have sort of these uh, these things that we would I would have expected thirteen years ago to happen in the next three years uh, haven't happened really yet at all. But my point <laughs> is, why not let the private sector lose data? <laughs> I think, Dominic, you know, um, look, I, I was involved with the FCM Bank of England Digital Reg Reporting for two years, and I was on the steering committee. And, um, you know, without divulging any kind of confidential information from that viewpoint, I think the, uh, the, the regulators have been very keen in terms of as much data collection from regulated firms as possible. And you would have seen with the Bank of England and the FCA who've actually published their data transformation plans, that that is quite clear. Uh, and there's also the dear CEO letters that have gone out to all of the regulated industry, which is saying, we're going to be really focusing on additional data collection. So I, I think a couple of points that just pick up and thread. One, I think the regulators are really keen on data sources and the actual collecting um, basically source data from institutions because it allows them to have a really clear picture of um, really, you know, from a prudential regime bridging perspective, but also from a conduct perspective, they can actually start to analyze and, and review where the problem areas are, hotspots are, right? That's where they're looking at. The, so uh, the second part then of that is how do you get to that point in an effective and efficient way and to make sure that happens? And digital reg reporting, DRR, when we look at regulatory interpretation using, using misunic distributed rules and having a taxonomy which, and then a model, 
that was the way by which to to actually simplify some of those things in a really in a, in a really quick way and get to a better data output. Just picking up with something R Rupert said, which is okay. Then how how is this going to grow further, and why are the regulators not actually using regulatory interpretation? Because the gap I see in terms of regulation and regulated firm is the interpretation gap between what's put in paper and articulated in words and then what regulatory implementation needs to be. I suffered with that for 10 years in, in, in my previous positions. Um, one of the things that, that's innovative that's come out recently, you might have read in the read recently is, is regulatory genome. So um, Cambridge University, um, ourselves from Grant Thornton, CMS McFarlane and, and, um, and, and MasterCard have actually gone into this regulatory genome project to actually look at how to really link the regulation to machine executive rules. And I think that's going to be quite an innovative project. And the reason I mentioned that is that is looking at working with regulators globally to, to close that gap between regulatory interpretation and get to a point whereby machine executable rules can really determine which type of regulations and which type of rule set needs to be created. And on the back of that, AI and ML to be used to be able to simplify some of the customer journeys and regulatory journeys. Yeah. Well, we're just getting in touch with the regulatory genome project uh, just this week, actually. So I'm glad you mentioned it. It's worthwhile. Now we're into our last four minutes, actually. So uh, I know some of you have got uh, have got to get away. So I just wonder if we could just touch, get a comment from each of you at the end here about where's the innovation in this sector really coming from it. You've got, on the one hand, you've got all these exciting things happening in the world of cryptocurrency and, and DeFi and eventually in security tokenization as well. That's obviously changing the shape of, of risks which regulators would like regulated firms to control. Um, as you say, um, Nearest, you've got regulators with this genome project. They've had this innovation network operation to try and standardize how they produce things to make this, you know, their regulations they publish more automatable. But my question is this, and you can answer it however you like. Um, uh, are we, is, is RegTech and SoupTech too much in the pockets of the, of the regulators? Are we making it too easy for regulated firms to comply with whatever the regulators put out? And is that creating problems for innovation in the financial services industry? And is it creating wider problems um, of almost a, a, a civil liberty. We talked a lot about data. We talked a lot about how official bodies collect data. Are we actually building a world here which we're not going to enjoy that much living and, and working inside? Is this, is this all going too far, too thoughtlessly? Sally, I'm sure that you've <laughs> worried about that. It's a very unfair question. You can answer it however you, however you like. Um, um. No, I do have thoughts about it. In fact, it's something that I think about quite regularly, and I've written a chapter about it in a in a OUP publication that's about to come out. So, um, simply, I think you know we used you used to be able to do two plus two, and then the, the the math got complicated and more complicated, and then the calculator was invented, and the calculator can do it much quicker. It doesn't mean that our brains can't handle it. It just means it's much quicker than we are. I think we're at exactly the same point. Um, there's too much data, there's too much complexity. Uh, we just need better tools. I'm actually quite positive because I see a lot more um, discussions and a lot more budget and a lot more strategy and policy being, being publicly announced and then implemented around digitization and infrastructure for digitization. So I'm not saying we're going to see the results of that immediately. Um, I think when you're building infrastructure, think about building highways, think about building uh, a building, a lot of it you never see, you don't see for a very long time, and then you see what comes from above the ground. So <clears throat> I think if, if you think that compliance is going to get less complicated, that's not going to happen because the world is getting more complex, and therefore we have no choice but to, but to invest in infrastructure. <clears throat> digital infrastructure, and that's what governments are doing. Now, going to drive innovation. Thank you. So it's not terribly reassuring. Um, Nearest, I know you've got to go, so perhaps you could address this. One of the points made by Joseph Tainter, the, the famous historian of, of civilization, why civilizations collapse, his conclusion really is that societies overinvest in complexity, which appears to be exactly what we're doing here. What do you think? 
before you have before you have to go. <laughs> uh, so it's a it's a million dollar question to answer in thirty seconds, Dominic. But More I'll than a million dollars. It's it's a, <laughs> our civilization at stake. Indeed, yeah. it is at stake. Well, there you go. That's the biggest responsibility I've ever been given in my life. Let me uh, let me kind of address it. So so I think in terms of regulatory technology, I I I, I tend to disagree. I think regulatory technology is there to simplify the problem. And, and not to complicate the problem. And, and I think, and, and the reason for that is for me kind of threefold. One is the activity that clients, sorry, the activity that people can be doing, more higher value added activity can be done by an automated way using clever data and clever automation. And I think it frees up the kind of compliance professionals, whichever risk professionals to do higher value added work. The secondly, um, the interpretation and activity that some of the regulation is quite complex when it's actually written. And to turn that into technology and data to be able to simplify that means that com regulatory compliance firms, regulated firms can actually comply with the regulations in an efficient, effective way, means that they, from a cost perspective, it reduces their cost, also reduces complexity. And, and increases the confidence in the financial services ecosystem, which is really important for all of us. And the third and final point, I think, is as technology increases, which we're going to see technology increases um, and digital increases and everything that we do, regulations have to keep up. And the only way regulation can keep up with technology and digital enhancers is having regulatory technology do that in an efficient way. So I hope I've saved civilization and given a clear answer. <laughs> Thank you. I know you've got to go in a rest, so do go if you, if you would. Um, yeah, can I add one more thing there? So yes, we're what we're doing, what we're doing here is uh, automating decision making, um, and there are two consequences to that: is that we can end up in very weird places because there's no one uh, exercising judgment on the way when rules uh, are built on rules, and we don't really understand how the whole system works and what the interdependencies are. Uh, but uh, luckily, when everything is rule based, we can do it by simulations because there's no no one no one doing judgments, and we can replicate the whole system in a simulation system and run every scenario. Uh, through uh, what what can can happen in different circumstances, so that's also related to those uh, like when, when regulations and uh, contracts uh, can differently. Kimo, from the way we did it before in two thousand and seven. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. It's, uh, it's good. In a way, it's uh, it's 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 good, but it's also so it can be very bad that everything is rule based. Just I know you're an expert on on networks and, and yeah. <laughs> so a reassuring comment from you. We're not our civilization is not about to end. Um, Fr Francois, um, are we over investing in in automating regulation? These 217 alerts a day. <laughs> well, I don't think that we'll ever be able to automate uh, all these regulations. Uh, as uh, it was said before, I think that uh, the, the, those new tools will enable to simplify the, the whole process. I don't think that we'll get rid of the compliance officers. Uh, they will still be uh, will still be in need of someone making that final judgment call and deciding what needs to happen when we detect issues. Uh, now it's really, as I said before, the mechani mechanical part of it all that uh, that will go away, and that I'm convinced of. And Globally, making it uh, more simple. Mm -hmm. Thank you, um, Rupert. It, it falls to you to, to give us a last word on this on this topic. So, so I think the um, I, I, as I say, I don't think the jobs necessarily will change, but how people do those jobs and how they're trained and how they are um, qualified to do those jobs. So, I think we will see lawyers. I think we will see compliance officers becoming much more of an engineering rather than a literary mindset. They're going to have to understand about versioning. They're going to have to understand about change. They're going to have to understand about data distribution. All of the things that we learned 20 or 30 years ago in, in um, information vending systems like Bloomberg and Reuters, all of that kind of stuff now moves into the compliance arena as data gets standardized as we build the kind of automated supply chains that we've been doing in coding and development, we now move into regulation. It's going to be that kind of evolution. So you know, if you're an engineer, the future's bright. Yeah, if you're a literary lawyer, then it's not so good. I actually disagree with that. <laughs> if you see, if you see, so, so um, the EU just announced plans for regulating AI. 
the whole legislation around AI and how you take into consideration whether they, they have a legal personality. Sorry, I'm a lawyer, by the way. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll use it. Let me, let me give you a final analogy to think about. Um, if you go onto the web, there are two very interesting films out there. One is a film of the Lumiere brothers, the first steam engine, hence I've got the engine behind me, where they've uh, uprated what was an original piece of cinema to 4K resolution. Now, AI was able to do that because it could find the edges and sharpen the picture. If you go back to the Armistice Day of 2018, which was 100 years after the end of the First World War, um, Peter Jackson, who did Lord of the Rings, uh, did a colorization of some First World War footage. So he did what they did with the train, but he had to, but he had to get all the colors right and all the cat badges right for the, um, for, to get the actual, the pictures right. Now, when you look at the credits of that film, he had over 200 people to get the metadata right for the AI, then to stitch the whole thing together to make it real or as real as he believed. And that is the issue. It's about data management and systematic data management that will enable AI to succeed. But if we believe that the computer is going to magically know that there is a haystack and know that it's looking for a needle, then we are doomed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We'd better stop there, I'm afraid, um, Sally, but uh, there's clearly lots to, to continue to talk about. I thought it was quite a hopeful note to end on there that those of us who thought the compliance department was the business prevention department is actually going to be reduced to a bunch of people tinkering with robots. But it sounds from your last comment there, uh, Rupert, that in fact, there's going to be even more people working in the compliance department <laughs> than there were before. But anyway, better stop there. Um, it's a fascinating subject. I'd like to thank our, our panelists, uh, Kimo Saramaki of FNA, uh, Sally Sphere Tate from Regulation, Rupert Brown from Evidology Systems, uh, Francois Uch from uh, Deloitte, and Neeresh Raja, who uh, had to leave us um, from Grant Thornton. Thank you also to the audience for your, uh, your interest and your listening and your questions. 